Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to your own personal slice of Sodom and Gomorrah. You have reached the heights of heavy metal Valhalla. This is the Sunset Strip. This is 1981. Let's do this thing! John! John! I'm gonna need to speak up today. There are too many scantily clad women and spandexed wild men maniacally cheering. It's also clearly time for us to explore the earliest days of glam metal in 1970s and 80s Los Angeles. Holy shit! Are you ready for this? Sure. You're bringing me down, man. You what? seem to have enough enthusiasm for the both of us. <laughs> I probably do have a cover. I did a lot of blow before the episode, so yeah. we, we should be good to go. Yep. I am so very ready. As has been well documented on this podcast, I grew up exceedingly well steeped in pop metal, and most particularly in that especially virulent strain of pop metal that is sometimes known as hair metal, sometimes known as glam metal, and always known as a fucking delightful melange of music theater and exuberant excess. What could possibly be better, John? I'm going to refrain from answering that question. Let's continue. Your answers will all bring me down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. You love theater, right? You're like a theater guy. I am a theater person, yeah. sure. I like theater. So I, I think it's important that, that you be able to sort of evaluate this musical experience as part of a... Part of a theatrical melange. And, and what is the uh, narrative tale that's trying to be told in these concerts? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, I don't I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, look, I'm hoping that you'll be able to find somewhere in your cold, dark soul a tiny, flickering light of glam metal love. Honestly, I think that by the end of this exploration, you'll be all decked out in lipstick and tight leather. That seems unlikely. Could we do a photo shoot if that does happen? If that happens, we may absolutely yes. do a photo shoot. Yes. <laughs> John, you had had a goodly amount of time to reflect on this particular project at this point, so I'm wondering what you bring to the table. <laughs> you, you haven't spent any time reflecting on this. <laughs> Are you saying that simply because it's been a long time since we last recorded? Yeah. Because you're well aware that I literally listened to the four songs you asked me to less than three hours ago. <laughs> you know, I remember early episodes when you, like, Listen to things multiple times. You were like, really like sort of like coming to the table with all the information ready to go. I think my freewheeling opinions are more entertaining. <laughs> you, f you found your shtick and you're going you're gonna to yeah. go with it. <laughs> yeah, a sort of just a complete state of ignorance really suits me. Yeah, all right. I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I think that's perfectly fair. <laughs> all right, well, I guess the question then is, based on your three hours ago experience and, and based on the time you've spent with me and the time you've been alive and whatnot, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you actually know about glam metal? Fucking nothing. Like, you didn't I, know. I mean, I, I have uh, more so than any sort of sound, I have like mental images in my head of what I would associate as kind of hair metal. Okay, you know, things. kind of the, the look of the, the art. The visual aesthetic and... I'm familiar with. Okay. The sort of overall sound I couldn't put into words, but I, it's pretty identifiable okay. in its aural aesthetic. I mean, a little bit of Rock of Ages. Sure, a little bit. A little yeah. bit. All right, well, here's the thing. This is truly an epic tale. 
It is a narrative opus of Wagnerian proportions, so magnificently theatrical that I've decided to frame it as a prologue and three acts. In fact, there's so much dang info that we need to cover that I'm going to break this episode into two separate parts. The prologue in Act 1 will set us the stage during the 1970s, while in Acts 2 and 3 we will dive deeply into the early 1980s explosion of glam metal on the Sunset Strip. John, strap yourself in. We've got some serious business ahead of us. Are you ready to enter the HM101 time machine and to travel back in time for the prologue with which we shall begin this foray into deepest musical depravity? Sure. <laughs> prologue. Welcome to jolly old England in March of 1971. Brr. Alas, we're quite far removed from the sunny, warm Los Angeles of the 1980s, no? I don't fucking know. I wasn't there. You, you, have you been to England? Uh, actually, no, I've not. No, I haven't either. But I, <laughs> I, we I, just I, assume I feel because like, of the poorly seasoned food and the bad teeth that the weather also always sucks. Yeah, I feel like it's jolly but cold. These, these, are, these are my thoughts. Burr. Hey, we're in England. Oh, got it. Where else could we be? Where indeed. Where indeed. The teeth are terrible. And yet we have arrived at an important moment in the prehistory of glam metal. Once, long ago, there was no glam metal. There was only glam. 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 Uh, John, what do you know about the primarily British phenomenon of the early 1970s known as glam rock? I could not draw a distinction between any of these sort of glam genres of music. You don't know nothing about nothing. That is correct. Okay. Part for the course. Do any of these names ring a bell? Let's go. T-Rex. Dinosaur. <laughs> Slade. A villain from DC Comics. The Sweet. No. <laughs> Something delicious. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, okay, how's about this one? David Bowie. I have heard that name. Oh my god, I'll fucking kill you. You know I don't care for his music. You don't know his, you don't know anything. I've listened to some of his songs. They are fine. Okay, well, so you know who he is. Yeah. You just are expressing the terribleness of your musical taste. Yes. In the clearest possible manner. Yes. Okay, good. I figured you would at least know who Bowie is. I mean, uh, he's one of the most beloved musicians of all time and one of my personal musical heroes. I named my dog after him, for God's sake. Your dog's great. He's amazing. Are we doing right? a dog podcast now? Uh, no. Oh. No. Sorry. I'm less Sorry. Maybe, maybe eventually. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll keep that in our back pocket for a future episode. Let's go. <laughs> David Bowie, indeed, was one of the principal movers and shakers in the glam rock scene, most particularly in his glitzy Ziggy Stardust days. Do you, do you know that album? I told you to listen to that album. Did you ever listen to it? No. Oh, fucking A. However... The artist who is generally most associated with the foundational moment for British glam rock is a fellow by the name of Mark Bolin. You ever heard of him? Mark Bolin? Mark Bolin. Nope. No? Okay. You're, you're useless. You're fucking useless. Eric, what do you want from me? <laughs> I want you to be Do you here. remember <laughs> the premise of this show? The premise of this show is that you are the teacher and I am the student who is taking your class because I don't know fucking anything about this music. Is this how you speak to your students? <laughs> Walk into the class, you get some freshmen who literally don't know anything. And you're like, Jesus Christ, you fucking morons. Why are you even here? God. Normally it's just an interior monologue. <laughs> <laughs> it 
<laughs> it's only in this context I get to actually. Got it. Got it. Anyhow, I still love you. I, I think you're right. You're if if you cease to be ignorant, you become useless to me. That's right. So we're then good. We'd, we'd have informed debates. What fun would that be? Ugh. Ugh. I shudder to think. Okay, so Mark Bolin was, in fact, the founder, way back in 1967, of a band that was originally known as Tyrannosaurus Rex, which was to become T-Rex by 1970. Bold change. It's not, not the most interesting change in the world, but it is, it's, you know, it's streamlined, it's more sure. efficient. Yeah. <laughs> better for t-shirts. Yes, definitely better. It was in March of 1971 when T-Rex performed on the British television show Top of the Pops. You know that show? I have actually heard of that yeah. show. Yeah, it's an important one. It was then when many people believed that glam rock was truly born. Bolin performed wearing a silver satin sailor suit. Can you say that five times? Fast? Silver satin sailor suit, silver satin sailor suit, silver satin sailor suit, silver satin sailor suit, silver satin sailor suit. That's good. Thank you. Good. You do have skills. <laughs> Go this you. is what I bring to the podcast, people. It's my quick tongue. God, I don't like that at all. <laughs> He also had glittery teardrops painted under his eyes. Now, by standards to come, Bolin's early glam look is actually pretty chill. Uh, here, take take a look. See what you think. Oh, that is very chill. Yeah, I mean, is that a teardrop? Yeah, I mean, teardrop like thing under his eye that is glittery and okay. Yeah, it's, it's not even beginning to approach the sort of flamboyant decadence that one pictures when one thinks glam. I think that's fair. But when you compare it to like, I, you know, we're dealing the with Beatles. 1971. Yeah, the yeah. Beatles or something like that. Like, it's clearly a more flamboyant presence. It's, the, it's that's the, fair. very, very early steps of getting a little glitzy. I, I think it looks nice. It's pretty fascinating, actually, to think that this would be the spark that ignited the glam rock fuse. Are you familiar with any of T-Rex's music? No. You listened to one on your playlist. I did. Bang a gone. Get it on. Oh, that was T Rex. Yeah, that was T Rex. Oh, I wasn't paying attention to the artists. <laughs> but that, but that was T Rex. You, okay. you, you, I, I had heard that song had, yeah. previously. Uh, what do you think? It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's sort of. It feels about two minutes longer than it needs to be. Don't, don't tell anybody like who's listening that I'm a T Rex fan. They do nothing for me. But <laughs> they're really important. So we talk about them here. We right. sacrifice, you know, we, to educate the masses. That's what we do. That's what we do. We sacrifice. <laughs> so T-Rex were never nearly so big in the U.S. as they were in the U.K., but their rise was well-timed to influence a whole bunch of young, impressionable, future American glam metal stars who would come of age during the 1970s. Okay, although glam rock in the early 70s was primarily a British phenomenon, it certainly did not go unnoticed in the U.S., Friend of the show, Alice Cooper, for instance, had a uniquely gothic take on glam that would, of course, prove to be a huge influence on glam metal to come. Another American 70s glam band that many may be less familiar with, but who were also hugely influential, was the New York Dolls. The New York Dolls? The New York Dolls. You know, John, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you if you know who the New York Dolls were, but I am going to show you a picture. Great. To me, the New York Dolls are the crucial missing link between the British glam rock of the 1970s and the American glam metal of the 1980s. So, thank God you found them. I found it. I've done it. Take a look. Oh my God. (laughs) Cheekbones. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. David Johansson has some serious cheekbones. I mean, they're also like, you know, nicely rouged, so I think that emphasizes them. 
What, what do you I think? I think this band is now illegal in, in a few states. <laughs> and you think that they would uh, rub some parental rights type figures oh, the wrong definitely. way? Yes. Yeah, I agree. It, it's the early 1970s, and we're seeing these very gender ambiguous... The level of teasing that has been brought to the hair <laughs> in this picture is truly astounding. And the lips clearly, like, beautifully lipsticked. I don't know. What do you, what do, you do to lips? You, 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 stick, you them. stick them. <laughs> They've been stuck. They got stuck real good. The, the listeners of the podcast may now realize that John and Eric don't know shit about makeup. No, it's not our area of expertise. So if anyone has a Makeup 101 show, perhaps they could be a future guest on the Heavy Metal 101 podcast. Or just write in and tell us how to uh, to say you put lipstick on. <laughs> You, you you stick it. Yeah, you sit. We got it. We got it. We, never mind. We're good. We're off or rescinded. Well, I think long story short, would you agree that this probably looks more like your image of glam metal than what you saw with Mark Bolin? Yes, with the caveat that it's still not shiny enough in the clothing. Good, and it's not. It's not quite there yet. It's the makeup has definitely gotten androgynous. The hair has gotten bigger. Big hair, for sure, big hair. And the outfits, I would describe the outfits as flamboyant, but not not shiny, not sparkly. Definitely not, not shiny. Yeah. No. Now, interestingly, despite their wildly androgynous look, musically, the New York Dolls were actually a proto-punk band. They formed back in 1971 and released their self-titled debut in 1973, which is fully three years before the Ramones' debut more or less officially kicked off punk as truly a thing. The Dolls are probably more a significant footnote in the history of heavy metal than actual participants. I would say they're actually really important in the history of punk. But their direct influence on another vastly more successful and influential New York-based proto-glam metal band merits at least a passing mention of them. We'll circle back to that band in a sec, but first, I want us to switch coasts. John, we're zooming across the country, leaving NYC, and rapidly careening westward. Okay. Uh, can you make some careening noises? Are we doing the cannonball run? Yeah. <laughs> uh, if only Burt Reynolds were here with oh, us today. If only. Yeah, yeah. All right. We, 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 we He's cannonball a big man. glam metal guy. He Burt was Reynolds. huge, huge. Yes, yes. The Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater in uh, Jupiter, Florida. It's <laughs> a, a lot of glam metal performances. All right. Anyway, cannonball run. Good, good. We need, briefly, to talk about a rather crucial California-based band who was led by a shredding lead guitarist and a blonde-maned, charismatic singer. John, do you have any idea who I might be talking about? Shredding lead guitar, blonde singer from California, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Bear. <laughs> such a fucker. <laughs> Just a fucker. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> to be clear, this band was not called Van Halen. That's the band that you were supposed to assume it was. Oh, yeah. see, that was the obvious answer, yeah. but I, it felt so obvious that I was like, I can't make it. It's got to be Bob. I got to come up with something. Just <laughs> gonna piss him off. I set him up, and you fuck it up. That's my job. All right, good. This band was called Montrose. Montrose. The Montrose. Great, yes, Montrose. You a Montrose fan? You didn't like the music on the playlist, so I don't think you're... No, I mean, I remember... I, I, can't, I, I can't remember the name of the song that you made me listen to. I do actually remember that one of them was by Montrose, though. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, well, we'll talk about that momentarily. Uh, but so Montrose was the brainchild and namesake of a seasoned session musician, guitarist Ronnie Montrose, and featured the vocal talents of future Van Halen frontman and tequila magnate Sammy the Red Rocker Hagar. Montrose came together in 1973, releasing a self-titled debut album that same year and truly taking some great strides towards establishing the sonic template that Van Halen would perfect just a few years later. Now here's the thing. In so doing, despite the fact they didn't especially look the part, more so than any of the other proto-glam metal bands we've thus far named, Montrose are the band that most significantly helped to establish the hard-rocking, good-times sound of glam metal to come. If we're to assume that Montrose is a band that went a goodly way towards establishing the sound of glam metal, perhaps now is a good time to take our first pause for some assigned listening. John, how does that sound? You're going to make him listen to this song? I'm gonna make I, him I checked the playlist to see what song it was. I can't believe you're going to make him listen I'm to gonna this I'm going to make him listen to it. They're going to love it. Good luck. <laughs> okay. All right. Before we listen, I'll give. Uh, uh, let me provide some context that may help them to appreciate it more. Are you going to take them back 40 years to when this was relevant? <laughs> Spiritually, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> We're going to take a listen to Rock Candy from Montrose's eponymous debut album. Before we listen, I'm going to lay out four musical attributes of the glam metal to come that I think can be found in this recording. John, while I know that you are both tone deaf and monstrously inattentive, I do want you to listen for the following things. Wow. <laughs> wow. That was pretty harsh. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Maybe I'll take it back. I'll give, you an, I'll give you a chance. Here's what we're listening for. You ready for this? All right. All right, number one a blues-based, harder rock sound favoring memorable, hooky choruses. Two, a good times-oriented lyrical content, primarily wallowing in the unholy trinity of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and with a particular inclination towards lewd, sexually graphic wordplay. Number three, a charismatic, gravel or nasal-voiced frontman singing in a high tenor range. And finally, four, a rugged, showily virtuosic guitar hero who, more often than not, handles both rhythm and lead duties, and who always gets a guitar solo. Get those big ears up and running, everybody, and let's enjoy some hard, sweet, and sticky rock candy. John's ready. <laughs> I have to know, was your rock candy hard and sweet and sticky? I mean, the rock candy of my childhood definitely was. Okay. Montrose were not, properly speaking, a glam band. But musically and lyrically, this has all the necessaries going on. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Sure. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, they're, yes. They're talking about sex. Mm -hmm. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. They're being coy and funny and... It's heavier than rock, but yeah. it's not really heavy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All the things that you classified are there. Yes. All right. I have successfully turned you into a Montrose fan. No. No, I didn't say I liked it. I just said the things that you talked about were there in the song. Montrose! Yeah, is that the hill you want to die on? <laughs> nah, not so much. Yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah, Montrose are fine. They're fine. They're not the greatest sure, band in the world. it was fine. The debut album, uh, collectively, the debut album is solid. Uh, as I was mentioning to you off-air or whatever, I mean, there are, there are many people who call this the first American heavy metal album, which is not totally unreasonable. 
1973, that was a long-ass time ago, especially when you consider American heavy metal as being uh, taking a little longer to coalesce, I think, than the, the British equivalent. Sure. Well, That's it, what I think. <laughs> thanks, buddy. <laughs> it's, it's your support that makes it all worthwhile. <laughs> it's review time. We've now discussed the founding voice and image of British glam rock, Mark Bolin of T-Rex. Yep. We've chatted about the edgy androgyny and punky energy of the New York Dolls. Yep. And we've got the shredding guitarist, charismatic blonde frontman, and good time California-style party rock aesthetic of Montrose. Correct. Okay. At this point, we have assembled all of the ingredients of for glam metal, sort of, they're all, they're all kind of spread out. They're right. all about. We just need to put them together. Right, right. We, what we need is some brilliant Jewish fellows from New York City to mix all of the elements into a delicious superhero-sized pyrotechnic-laden stew. John, I hesitate to ask, <laughs> but can you think Go of anyone who might fit that bill? Wait, is this you? Is this all about you? <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm the Jew in question. Am I the only Jew you know? Well, you're the only Jew I know that's interested in this music. Well. You are the best! You get the best! The hottest band in the world! Kiss! It's Kiss, John! It's Kiss! Oh, I should have known you can't go an episode without talking about I these can't. assholes. I've gone way too long without talking about Kiss. <sighs> I feel better. I feel like... I'm so glad It's for like you. the birds are singing and the, the clouds have parted. It's just really nice. So, look, obviously we already discussed Kiss at some length back in season number one, but there was no one band who did more to establish the template for future glam metal superstardom than the hottest band in the land, Kiss who formed in New York City in 1973 and really were amongst the biggest and most beloved bands of the 1970s. Glam metal would be nothing without the glamour of the star child, the evil of the demon, the drugged out shredding of the spaceman, and whatever the hell it was the Catman brought. Anyway, can I, can I get an amen? About Kiss? Yeah! You can give it to yourself. Amen! All right, All right. there it is. Yes! Uh, okay, so now that we have KISS, we are ready to move on. The prologue is completed, we've met the Founding Fathers, and now it is time to set the stage. Okay, John, you are the chosen one. Please move us along via your mellifluous, dulcet tunes. Act, 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 one. 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 John, what do you know about the Sunset Strip? Relatively little, quite honestly. <laughs> have, you, have, you, have you been to LA? Like when I was very young. Okay. Not as an adult. Okay. Okay. So you're no, you're no, you're no expert on uh, no. the City of Angels. No. Okay. Well, if pop metal has a mecca, then its name is the Sunset Strip. So, so what the hell is it? Uh, where the hell is it? Okay. So we're going to clarify some deets. When we refer to the Sunset Strip, what we're talking about is a 1.7-mile stretch of Sunset Boulevard, which is one of the major thoroughfares that runs through Los Angeles. Specifically, the strip goes through West Hollywood, starting at its border with Beverly Hills, and ending with its border with the city of Los Angeles proper. So we've got geography on Heavy Metal 101 yet again. I feel like this is like our new thing. We did this with the Mississippi Delta last time, too. That's true. Should we, should we just make this a geography podcast? No, we should not. 
we should steer clear of this topic. <laughs> should I pull up some maps and we can just possible. describe? <laughs> yes, let's let's bring up a map and now we'll read to you everything that we see on the pull, pull up Google satellite and we'll describe what buildings are there. Okay. Well, anyway, culturally, I think the important thing to note is that until the year 1984, the Strip was actually in an unincorporated area of Los Angeles County, and it wasn't under the jurisdiction of the Los Angeles Police Department. Wow, so uh, you're saying it was just a lawless... Yeah. It, it was a no-man's land, and it was perfectly situated to become a playground for, you know, people who wanted to get it on and bang a gong and uh, we stick, didn't talk about stick that their lips. Well, you know it exists. Sure. Do you want to talk about it? I, I just feel like you're bringing it up because it's theoretically relevant to this episode, and yet we completely omitted any discussion of that song in the episode. We can go back and talk about I it. I really don't want to. I didn't think it was very good. <laughs> no, it's not a great song. Okay. But if you wanted to get it on or to bang a gong... Mm-hmm. Uh, you could s- do so legally in the Sun Sun Strip before 1984. 1984. Got true. it. Okay, we're back on topic, folks. Here we go! <laughs> All right. Now, in my experience... Most of the time, when people discuss glam metal, what they tend to do is focus primarily on the sex and the drugs. Uh, For the record, I don't think there's anything wrong with debauchery. (laughs) Big fan. Big fan. (laughs) Two thumbs up. But here at Heavy Metal 101, we are going to focus on the rock and roll. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. (laughs) There are countless VH1 classics documentaries out there, which you can find on YouTube, that will tell you everything you possibly wanted to know about cocaine and blowjobs on the Sunset Strip. Go check them out. Why are we here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we could pause it. Nobody would know. (laughs) Watch a few documentaries and then come back as if nothing happened. Well, are you okay if we skip out on those stories for the time being? (sighs) I will try to persevere. No cocaine, no blowjobs for today. This is the worst day ever. (laughs) It's not, it's not great, I'm not going to lie to you. I think we're all disappointed. <laughs> With this in mind, before we get to the people and the bands that make up the incipient glam metal scene of the mid through late 1970s, we're going to really set the stage, so to speak, and talk about some of the legendary Sunset Strip venues in which those artists would play. There's something of an unholy trinity of clubs that were particularly significant to the rise of glam metal. The Whiskey a Go-Go, more often known as simply The Whiskey, which opened on January 16, 1964, and is still packing them into this very day. There was Gazaris, which opened on February 21, 1967, and closed its doors forever in 1993. And the much-beloved Starwood, which burned ever so brightly between 1973 and 1981, and was particularly notorious for allowing scantily clad teenage girls in as patrons. Yikes. Yeah, it seemed less problematic when I was in my, like, teens and stuff than it does now. Not, mm. not great. Well, we can see why it closed in 1981. It's pretty gross. Yeah. Now, just so you can get a sense of scale, the Whiskey, which is probably the most prestigious of these three venues, has a capacity of just 500 people. So we're talking about some relatively intimate performance spaces here. Mm-hmm. So who was playing at these venues? Let's talk proto-glam metal bands on the 70s Sunset Strip. Huzzah! I think probably the first thing to realize is that we're talking about the mid to late 1970s. And these earliest developmental years for what was to become glam metal were also the years of both punk rock and new waves ascendancy. 
It was a complicated time in which hard-rocking proto-glam metal bands sometimes shared bills or even membership with punk and or new wave bands, and that while these scenes certainly did share some amount of animosity towards each other, there also was quite a lot of cross-pollinization going on across all of them. Few bands are more representative of this melange of rock styles than the merry collective of eclectic musical misfits known as the Runaways. Now, John, I was surprised when I spoke to you about this earlier, but you can tell all the nice people. Are you a fan of the Runaways? I don't know the Runaways from any other band that we've talked about today. <laughs> well, for the record, my daughters adore the song Cherry Bomb and are both big Joan Jett fans particularly. So I think I did something right. Okay. I got nothing against Joan Jett. She's cool, right? Sure. Do you hate yourself for loving me? <laughs> you do a little bit. The way you just stopped and made direct eye contact with me while you said that. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of moving, right? We had a moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, I, I mean, long story short here, you don't really care about the Runaways. Like, they, they, what you know of the, is, is all you know of them the two songs on the playlist? As far as I know. Yeah. I, I mean, that probably, that very well could be the case. I mean, as I, as I learned, your, your ignorance knows no bounds. That's correct. You think something's common knowledge, I'm here to disprove that. Correct. Mundo. So to date, we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about a whole lot of dudes. So first and foremost, it's important to note that the Runaways were an all-female band. Oh, I know you drive me wild. Sorry, I just looked them up. <laughs> so I, I, I do drive you wild. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, good. You're getting there. You know things. Musically, they always had at least one foot in punk and the other in hard rock slash heavy metal and at least a bit of a glam rock underpinning. I'd be hard-pressed to definitively call them a heavy metal band, but they were most definitely an integral part of the proto-glam metal scene on the Strip. They were formed in sunny Los Angeles by drummer Sandy West and the aforementioned future icon and hero to Eric's daughters, Joan Jett after the two fell into the orbit of legendary L.A. scenester and, sadly, alleged rapist Kim Fowley, who would go on to manage the band and produce a number of their albums and also eventually, allegedly, to rape bass player Jackie Fox. Now that is super, super fucked up, no doubt. But speaking of Jackie Fox, I actually have a much more pleasant aside about her, what might be called a fun fact. Do you want to hear my fun fact about her? Yes. Oh, good. So Jackie Fox, whose actual name is Jacqueline Fuchs, eventually left music and became an attorney, which is totally fine, but not particularly a fun fact. It just is what it is. The fun fact part is that back in 2018, while I was watching Jeopardy with my lovely wife, we happened to catch this same Jacqueline Fuchs over the course of a four-night winning streak as Jeopardy champion. How cool is that? Yay. <laughs> you know, a lawyer won money on Jeopardy. Woo! A former bass player for the Runaways becomes successful attorney, becomes four-night Jeopardy champ. Look, that's a really interesting person. Wow. And she was the like... fucking American dream right there. I kind of agree. <laughs> you don't think? <laughs> I think. God. What do you care about? Very little. <laughs> Honest answer. Anyway, I should probably mention that when the Runaways formed, Drummer West was 15 years old. That's wild. Yeah, Jet, by contrast, was a mature, world-weary 16-year-old. 
These were kids. The classic lineup, as featured on their first two albums, included Joan Jett on rhythm guitar and sometimes vocals, and Sandy West on drums, as well as Cherry Curry on lead vocals, Jackie Fox on bass, and future pop metal icon Lita Ford on lead guitar. Aside from the time and the place, another reason the Runaways are a part of this discussion is due to the musical tensions between their two guitarists, the more punk-oriented Jet and the more metal-oriented Ford, both of whom would go on to have successful solo careers following the Runaways' implosion in 1979. Let's get ourselves a sense of how things were actually sounding on the strip in the mid-1970s. For our assigned listening, I wanted to choose something from the Runaways' second album, Queens of Noise, which is from 1977. It's a more hard rock slash proto-metal album than their considerably punkier debut. What better way to truly transport ourselves to this time and this place than with a song called Hollywood? John, could you please give us just a smidgen of the lyric to get us in the mood? Each day at home I scheme for the fame and fortune dream, gonna be a superstar with my fancy clothes and cars. Hollywood, it feels so good. I feel like that could be a page torn from your diary. Uh, you have obviously not read my diary. <laughs> I, I haven't, I haven't. I respect your boundaries. I want you to know that. Now, this passage is pretty much the glam metal ethos in a nutshell. So, John, put on your fanciest cavortin duds and take us to Hollywood circa 1977. Have you ever been charmed? Yeah. Oh, okay. Just not by the runaways? No. Huh. <laughs> I feel like my line doesn't make any sense now. Can't wait. <laughs> How's about those runaways, John? You know, <laughs> for small children, I suppose that is not bad music. <laughs> You're such a condescending prick. Look, I, so genuinely, my impression listening to all of the songs that you gave to me for this episode was that they were... Sort of rudimentary and simple and not terribly complex or interesting in any of the ways that I like music to be. They were not bad. They were not offensive. I could understand why people would find enjoyment in them as there is nothing to, to take umbrage with. But it's like, okay. I feel like anyone could have written this. You just happened to be the people that did. And kudos to you for doing that and, and earning whatever you did from it. Okay. I have a feeling you're going to feel that way about a lot of the music in this mini-series. I, I think that may very well be true. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. Maybe Rat will sway you in uh, unexpected the, the ways. people from the uh, Home yeah. Insurance commercial? It, uh, it's, yes, yes, Geico. <laughs> it's what, what's for dinner? Is that their, their motto? <laughs> Geico? It's what's for dinner? <laughs> yeah, I think you got it. Let's go on. Okay. Move. Moving along, look, I can't argue but that Cherry Bomb is most certainly the Runaways' masterpiece, but generally I prefer the material on Queens of Noise to their self-titled debut. Uh, it's just, it's got a more hard rock and sound, and that is right up my alley. Regardless, I think this is some very cool stuff, and it helped to demonstrate oh so clearly that the girls could rock every bit as hard as the boys could, which, you know, was a bone of contention for most of the history of rock and roll, sadly. At this point, we find ourselves on a mid-1970s sunset strip awash in a drug-addled, complicated stew of punk, new wave, and proto-glam metal bands, all trying to find their fame and fortune in glittery Hollywood. It's probably worth reminding everyone that by the late 1970s, the hard rockers were viewed by many as out-of-date relics. The conventional wisdom was that heavy metal was over. 
and that punk and new wave were the music of the future. Before we come to our climactic Act 1 finale, which will help us to neatly disprove this foolhardy hypothesis, let's quickly take a peek at a few of the future glam metal scenesters who made their way to the promised land that was the Sunset Strip over the course of this proto-glam metal era. Guitarist extraordinaire Randy Rhodes and bassist Kelly Garney founded what became Quiet Riot in 1973, though they didn't settle on that name until 1975. In the mid-1970s, Quiet Riot were among the most significant hard rock rivals on the strip to the mighty Van Halen, though it's worth noting that Van Halen's 1977 signing with Warner Brothers dwarfed the prestige of Quiet Riot's signing in that same year with Sony Japan. It would be a nearly completely different lineup that was to make massive international pop metal waves in 1983 via Metal Health. Also on the scene at this time was a band led by singer Stephen Percy called Nicky Rat, R-A-T-T, that had been originally founded under the rather unfortunate name Crystal Pistol in 1974. This is the band that would of course become Rat in 1981. The revolving door membership of the Mickey Rat era included future Mark II Ozzy Osbourne guitarist Jake E. Lee, amongst others. A significant singer named Don Dawkins' first band to play on the strip was formed in 1976 and called Airborne. Among its members included future Rat bassist Juan Cousier and future Rat drummer Bobby Blotzer. The original lineup had fallen apart by 1978 and by 1979 when the band released a first single entitled Hard Rock Woman, it was under the new name Dokken. I cannot believe I pronounced that correctly. I was amazed actually, I totally thought I was going to make fun of you. <laughs> the band that would eventually become Great White had its earliest stirrings when singer Jack Russell met guitarist Mark Kendall and the two began playing together. This would eventually crystallize into a project that was known as Dante Fox for most of its time as a club band on the strip. Worth noting is that the band's development was interrupted for a time at the end of the 70s when Russell was arrested for shooting a maid during a robbery while high on PCP. For the record, she did not die, thankfully, though he was sentenced to eight years. However, he ended up serving just 18 months before being released and rejoining the band. Now that's quite a fish tale, no? So, as wild and alarming as it is that this person shot someone in a robbery while high on PCP, mm -hmm. what's infinitely more concerning to me is that some parents out there named their son Jack with the last name Russell. As in the Terrier. Yeah. Uh, you know, I actually do not know for sure if that's a stage name or not. I would have to. Would have Even to. more alarming if he decided <laughs> that his stage name was a yappy dog. This is not the end of Great White's like tragic history. You know, they're the band that eventually in the 21st century had the club fire where over 100 people died. Because of their pyrotechnics gone awry. Yeah, yeah. Great White has had an interesting checkered past. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Finally, forming in 1978 was an important band that never quite made it, but whose ever-changing membership was a veritable who's who of future glam metal superstardom. That band was called London, who have been referred to by its very own members as, quote, a training school for rock stars. 
One-time Londoners who would go on to stardom included future Motley Crue bassist Nikki Six, Blackie Lawless, the future singer of Wasp, future Guns N' Roses guitarist Izzy Stradling, and drummer Stephen Adler, and future Cinderella drummer Fred Curry. John, weren't you briefly in London as well? No, we, as we discussed earlier, uh, I've never been to England. You, 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 I set it up and you, you knocked it down that time. That was, that was good. I mean, it wasn't great, but it was, it was good. <laughs> it was a pun. I liked it. Okay, anyway. How freaking cool would it have been to party with all of these dudes on the Sunset Strip in the late 1970s? There would be cocaine. There would be the aforementioned blowjobs. Like, you know, it would be a good time, right? Sure. Like, I think these dudes would love us, right? We'd be hanging out. I do not think any of these people would like me, no. I'm sure you would get along with them just fine. I tend to piss off everyone everywhere I go. <laughs> I can see you being a bit of a drag <laughs> on the scene, if we're to be totally honest. <laughs> okay. So, all of those bands, or at least many of their individual members, would go on to do great things over the course of the first wave of L.A. glam metal in the early 1980s. However... There was just, just, one. just one. There can be only one. Bam. That managed to emerge from the hard rockin' segment of the L.A. scene and who would utterly change the world in the late 1970s and beyond. John, any idea which beloved Heavy Metal 101 season number one featured band I might be referring to? Are we talking about Van Halen again? Yes, Van fucking Halen! Amen! No, no amen from you? Is that I, I didn't go to church. <laughs> when someone says amen, are you supposed to just I say amen? I don't know, amen? I'm Jewish. What the fuck do you Why are you mad at me then? <laughs> I just thought we had a thing. We have no things. <laughs> Nothing has been established. We're flying by the seat of our pants. Every <laughs> single episode. Okay. I don't want to spend too much time on Van Halen. Yes, we do. We, well, I do, yes. But we did already devote an entire episode to their formation and debut album. However, I am very much of the opinion that it was Van Halen who most definitely provided the musical and visual template upon which so much glam metal to come would be based. Van Halen may not, properly speaking, have been a glam metal band themselves, controversial, some people feel otherwise, but more so than any other band in the 1970s, their emergence marked the true starting point for the glam metal scene that would arrive in their wake in the early 1980s. Certainly as a band whose major label debut was released in 1978, they were tremendous outliers at the edge of a scene that really wouldn't otherwise even kind of begin to break until 1981, and wouldn't seriously do so until 1983. Five years is a long-ass while in popular music, wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yeah. Van Halen, I think it's safe to say, were very ahead of their time. Now, just a couple of particularly pertinent facts about Eddie and the Boys before we take ourselves a little siesta. Van Halen, you may recall, formed in Pasadena, California back in 1972. Now, since we're doing geography today, it's geography day, right? Uh, that's a little more than 10 miles north of Los Angeles. Geography! Woo. <laughs> well, they cut their teeth in the Pasadena backyard party circuit. Van Halen's first Hollywood gig. Yeah, they were like they were like a high school party yeah, man. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anyhow, Van Halen's first Hollywood gig was at Gazzari's. You remember Gazzari's? I remember Gazzari's. I think you said you'd been to Gazzari's. Right? I haven't been to Gazzari's. Oh, okay. I, I misremembered that. Mm-hmm. That was on April 4th, 1974. 
It is worth noting that owner Bill Gazzari apparently turned them down after each of their first three auditions to play at the club. Once they finally did get in the door, they then began to play rather regularly there, but as a cover band primarily. They'd play three-hour nightly sets and sneak in the occasional original when they could get away with it. John, would you be interested in forming a cover band with me? I'm thinking we could take Sunset Strip by Storm, and what we'd do, we'd perform glam metal arrangements of popular classical themes. It'd be like you, me, Beethoven, Lipstick, Pyrotechnics. What do you think? Well, we'd clearly need someone to help us with the makeup. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. If we've learned anything okay. today. I'm willing to agree with that. So we, we, we need help. Listeners, <laughs> if you're interested in participating, please email us. Heavy Metal 101 Podcast at gmail.com. Resume is accepted. All right. We're, we're going to file this one away for future consideration. So Van Halen had a steady run of regular gigging at Gazzari's for an entire two and a half years before playing their final gig there on October 17th of 1976. That's just a few short weeks before I was born, incidentally. Wow, you're old. I know. Holy shit, am I old. Not, not as old as Van Halen, though. It was very shortly thereafter, on November 2nd, 1976, three days before I was born, when Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley of KISS, who were then superstars casting about for a band to mentor, saw Van Halen playing a gig at the Starwood. They were actually sharing the set with a band called The Boys, that's boys with a Z, who, it should be noted, counted among its members future Dokken guitarist and drummer George Lynch and Wild Mick Brown. Legend has it that the guys from KISS had actually come to see the boys, but were simply blown away by Van Halen. Gene Simmons of that performance said, quote, My fucking God, listen to these guys. That's uh, basically what you said after listening to the first Van Halen album, right? Uh, I, I like Van Halen. Yeah, you liked it. I like Van Halen. You were not quite as enthusiastic as Gene Simmons, maybe, but you liked them. Well, I've never been as enthusiastic I just think, as Gene Simmons right. about anything in yeah. my life. Okay, I think that is accurate. Well, do you think that that's the kind of thing people say about our podcast when they listen to it? What was the line again? My fucking God, listen to these guys. I think it goes more like, my fucking God, listen to these guys. <laughs> I, I can see that. <laughs> Alright. As we previously discussed, Simmons would go on to record Van Halen for what became the Zero Demos, in sessions first in Los Angeles and later in New York City. The not-so-wonderful result of all this was a meeting with Kiss's manager, Bill Coyne, in which he famously declared... I don't see any commercial potential. We should probably wrap up on Van Halen. Uh, while we know that the Kiss connection didn't work out for them, it would be at later gigs, also at the Starwood, on the evenings of February 2nd and 3rd of 1977, that producer Ted Templeman and Warner Brothers label chairman Mo Austin heard Van Halen, leading to them being signed to Warner Brothers within 24 hours. Apparently, there were approximately 20 people at the Starwood show the night Van Halen got discovered. And thus began the Sunset Strip's legendary status as the place where streets were paved with groupies and glam metal dreams really could come true. <laughs> Jump. We have reached the climactic conclusion of Act One. We've, it feels like a climax. Yeah, I feel I feel like I'm like sweating. You're, you're maybe working too hard. <laughs> I might be. <laughs> well, I would say that we've set the stage. Yes. We've definitely met some of our formative characters. Sure. We've okay. had some laughs. Always. Yeah, yeah. We've listened to some music. You could call it that. 
<laughs> we, we did a bit of blow. Just a little bit. A uh, skosh. I think it's time for an intermission. How does that sound? Thank God. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Okay, so everyone remember, if you love the show, and I'm sure you do, please review If you made it this far and you <laughs> yeah. don't love this show, who hurt you? You don't have to listen to this. You should You have free will. You can turn this off and go do whatever you want. Why would you tell them that? You're giving people ideas. I, look, I feel as though people need to know <laughs> that they can just walk away from shit if they don't like it. Anyhow, if you do love the show, please review, share, and rate us. And if you don't, do, do what John says. <laughs> you can also contact us via email or on the social medias. All the info is in the show notes. I don't think we need to read it. Part one, blah, blah, blah. Okay, are we still taking voicemails? Yeah, 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 Have yeah. Have we gotten a voicemail? No, no, no. All right. <laughs> all right. Everybody, take a stretch. Smoke if you got them. We'll all be back for part two of this monumental magnum opus soon enough, trusty listener. Meanwhile, John, coffee break! <laughs>